If you have your Bibles, I'd love to encourage you to join me in John chapter 12. If you've ever been in trouble before or you've made a statement and somebody responded to you in essence by saying, who do you think you are? Somebody asks you, who do you think you are? You know you have probably overstepped. Here in John chapter 12, those words will not be spoken, but in the truth that Jesus communicates, in effect, the question is asked, who do you think you are? We must align ourselves with the way that Christ thinks. I want to take just a moment and set the scene, the stage just a little for what Jesus is going to address. As I was studying, I read this. Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures always believed that too high a view of oneself was the root cause of all evil in the world. In other words... Why are there crimes and violence? Why are people abused? Why are people cruel? The answer traditionally was that people had too high a view of themselves. That's why they misbehaved. However, in our modern culture, we've developed an utterly opposite cultural consensus, which now forms the basis for education, the foundation for legislation, and the starting point for most modern counseling. Here it is. Our belief today is that people misbehave because they have too low a view of themselves. They lack self-esteem. They lack awareness of how great they actually are. That runs completely opposite of scriptural truth. This mentality has infiltrated the church. It's perverted and it has twisted the perspective that we should have on Scripture. Jesus is going to address this directly in John chapter 12. Now what you and I need to understand is that by the time we arrive at John chapter 12, we are getting very near the cross of Jesus Christ. He's already experienced the ecstasy of the triumphal entry. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem with what I believe is hundreds of thousands of people shouting hosannas and welcoming him in as a king. Josephus, the Jewish historian, will tell us that during Passover week, the population of Jerusalem would swell to two or three million people. This was no small gathering that was there as Jesus rode in on the colt and they praised him as Messiah. Also grasp, contextually speaking, that at this moment, the religious Jews are ushering thousands of lambs into the city. Right in the middle of all of these Passover lambs, which would die in memory of Israel's redemption from Egypt, is Jesus. The final lamb that would ever need to be slaughtered for the sins of all humanity. The lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the whole world. Now we have the whole story. We have inspired scripture. We have hindsight which is perfect. But the disciples don't have that. I want you to enter in a little bit to their mindset in verse 16 here of John chapter 12. Here's what the Bible says. These things understood not his disciples at the first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The disciples are in a state of confusion as Jesus talks about his death. The disciples are in a state of confusion as Jesus talks about his death in the context of this unbelievable accepting of him on the triumphal entry. Make no mistake about it, though Jesus has some confused disciples and he has had the triumphal entry, there are also people there that desperately hate Jesus. Back a chapter in chapter 11 in verse 53, here's what we read of the chief priests. From that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. They despise Jesus. He's the antithesis of everything that they taught, everything that they stand for. Four verses later, they actually make a public edict that if you know where Jesus is, tell us so that we can find him. Verse 57, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him and kill him. Understand this triumphal entry and confused disciples also have interjected into this scene chief priests and Pharisees who despise Jesus and are seeking to execute him. As they are working their plan, they note the reception that Jesus has gotten in Jerusalem and they assess in John 12 and verse 19, behold, the world is gone after him. It seemed to them with all of these tens and hundreds of thousands of people shouting Hosanna that the whole world had actually followed him. We want to kill him and they want to crown him. It is no coincidence that John, the beloved disciple, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this next verse right after the Pharisees assess the whole world has gone after Jesus. Note in verse 20 of John 12. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same, this group of Greeks, come to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. The assessment of the Pharisees is the whole world has gone after him and immediately placed into the context, we have some Greeks who are attending the Passover feast who come to Philip, see him as an ambassador for Jesus and desire to have a meeting with Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, asking, what should I do? Andrew and Philip both go and they tell Jesus, Jesus, there are some Greeks here that want to speak to you. Post-triumphal entry, confused disciples, raucous crowd accepting Jesus, chief priests and Pharisees trying to kill him. And in Jesus' response to Philip and Andrew, he gives paradoxical sayings. They're stunning. Note with me in verse 23, Jesus is now answering Philip and Andrew. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. 
And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now stop for just a second. Enter into this scene. Get into the mind of the disciples. Is that not the strangest answer for Jesus? There are some Greeks here to see you. It seems like it's misplaced. Jesus, some Greeks are here during the Passover feast. They have inquired to see you. We gather that this is a different kind of week. We understand that everything is changing. What do you think? And that's the response of Jesus. It's full of paradoxical sayings. In fact, I note in those verses three paradoxical sayings, seemingly contradictory statements. Number one is you have to die in order to actually bear fruit. The second is you have to hate your life on this earth, in this world, to actually keep your life. And the third is you have to serve, you have to be willing to be a slave if you ever want to actually be honored. Three paradoxical statements all wrapped up in the big picture idea of you must die to live. If you wrote in verse 23 where Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified and you just paused Scripture. Again, trying to marry ourselves to the context and enter into the emotion of this Bible scene so that we can be taught. You have just witnessed hundreds of thousands of people proclaim that salvation is on the scene in the form of Jesus the Messiah. As you come to Jesus, Jesus says to you, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. If you paused after that, you would expect... An amazing thing to happen. If the Son of Man is going to be glorified, then certainly there's going to be some kind of cosmic celebration. There's going to be an angelic choir from horizon to horizon. Some kind of trumpet blast is going to sound. But rather, what Jesus says is, I'm going to be crucified. It in and of itself is paradoxical. These Greeks are here to see you, Jesus. Jesus says, well, I'm going to be glorified. And in that, he's speaking of his crucifixion. It's stunning to see what he does. You do not understand the ministry nor the person of Jesus Christ until you come to grips with the fact that Jesus came to die. This is the backdrop of everything that Jesus will teach us. Again, as I reference, if you're encountering the Bible for the very first time, you expect some kind of celebration, but instead, Jesus is talking about the cross. Jesus is telling us in the Gospel of John, the cross, though it is a shameful way of execution, is actually the place of glorification for Jesus. The backdrop for what He is going to teach us is the cross where He will die. And in this, he teaches us three things that are involved in dying to live. The first thing Jesus is communicating is this. You and I must die to selfish ambition. Note again in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus does not have the capacity to lie. 
It's not in his nature. And yet he layers on it, verily, verily, I am telling you a certain truth. What Jesus then says is an illustration that's incredibly simple. If you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, you cannot see the plant on the inside of that seed. But if you take that seed and you bury it in the ground, encased in a tomb-like structure, it dies and bursting out, as one wrote, is a resurrection plant. It's an illustration that Jesus is teaching. He's telling this group of Greeks who've come to meet him, you're right for wanting to see me. You are right for wanting to meet me. And in fact, I will be glorified and fulfill my kingly role by dying. I'm like a seed. You and I must die to selfish ambition. One wrote this, God's children are like seeds. Left alone, we're small and insignificant, but his life is within us. And when we die to ourselves, our lives flourish with fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of evangelism, the fruit of discipleship, the fruit of salt and light producing effects. Yet it takes great faith for me and for you to say, here am I, Lord, bury me. Jesus is communicating to the disciples. Jesus is communicating to anyone that wants to follow him. You must give God the right to determine what kind of plant you are and where it is that he will bury you. I love how one pastor puts it practically. He says, some of you are hiding from God, the gardener. Not overtly. Not indignantly, but you have communicated a message from your heart that reads, this seed is not for burial. And by the way, while you're at it, divine gardener, keep away from all of my little seedlings too. I want to be the decider of where they go and what happens. I want them to be close to me so that we can all enjoy our barren, fruitless lives together. What Jesus is articulating is this paradoxical truth. You must die to live. And in order to do that, you have to die to selfish ambition. You must grasp that he has the authority to choose what kind of plant you are and where you will be buried. I have been 19 plus years in North Carolina. Never a day before moving here at the age of 27 did I dream of and envision living in North Carolina. I didn't know anything about North Carolina, to be quite honest with you. I'm one of the people that you dislike. I'm one of those transplanted northerners. Elite Northeasterners. I'm from perhaps one of the most hated cities in all the world. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Nobody likes D.C., They call it the mid-Atlantic because we're not actually in the north and we're not actually in the south. We're like the district in and of itself is not a state. It's taxation without representation if you ask people in the district. Everybody sends people there and then they call us like a loony bin and say it's a terrible, wicked place. Well, that's where I'm from. And when I thought of North Carolina before actually coming to North Carolina, I thought to myself, I don't know. I know of Andy Griffith. I've heard of Bojangles and Cheerwine. Honestly, neither things to be super proud of. 
I know there are rocking chairs in the airport because anytime I fly American Airlines, I pass through and I see rocking chairs. And I was, I was under the impression that maybe people wore shoes in North Carolina. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I had overall shoes, straw hanging out of their mouth. I didn't know much about it. To be quite honest with you, my wife and I were walking in somewhere yesterday and we saw a sign, Matthews, North Carolina, and I said to her, can you imagine that we've been 19 plus years in Matthews, North Carolina? Who would have picked it? Who would have thought it? It's what God has for us. Now, hold on. I got really spiritual with her in the moment. He said, well, you're a pastor. That happens a lot, right? It happens a lot right here. Here I'm super spiritual. Not so much out there. It happens on occasion. And I said to her, listen, I'm working on this. This is for tomorrow. We don't get to pick where God plants us, nor do we get to pick what kind of plant we actually are. Now we can spend our entire life on this earth bucking against what God is doing and kicking against what God has done and pushing back against what God is asking and pressing against what God has, has asked of us. But the fact is, we have to die to live and that requires that we die to selfish ambition and we grasp, I'm a seed and God, you plant me where you want me to be planted and you pick the kind of plant I am. But until you get to that place... Life's a miserable struggle. I think the pun is intended, die to live. You ever felt like death? Yeah. You had like the flu, or you're exhausted, or you're sitting in an 11 o'clock service at Graceway. You just feel like death, man. You just feel pressed. It feels like life is closing in on you. Can I tell you, figuratively speaking, it is oftentimes in those seasons that God is sowing in us something that will yield growth. Die to selfish ambition. Later on, the Apostle Paul is going to be straightening out the believers in the churches at Philippi. He'll say this to them in Philippians 2 and verse 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He's just straightforward. Die to selfish ambition. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul looks at the church and he says, let not one single thing be done through strife or vainglory. The word that he uses for strife there communicates jockeying for position. Caring about what you get out of it. Who knows your name? Who sees what you're doing? Who pats you on the back for your accomplishments? It's selfish ambition. Discord and division are inevitable when people jockey for position, when people are focused on their own agenda, when the body's divided and everybody, instead of seeing the whole picture, just fixates on their little pixel. He uses the word vainglory in there. Vain, when you see that in scripture, is essentially communicating empty. Any attempt to get glory actually ends in emptiness. It's an exaggerated importance. Jesus is telling us if we actually want to experience life in Christ, we must die to self. Dying to self means we must die to selfish ambition. Not one thing should be done through jockeying for position or emptiness. Not one. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. Die to self-preservation. Now that's a mouthful. Die to self-preservation. 
Note what he says in verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Life is used three times in that verse. The first two times it is used, it is a different Greek word than is used the last time. The first two times that it is used, it is the word suke, which indicates the life of the intellect, the life of the mind, the emotions, the will. The third time that it is used, it is the word zoe, and in that, it is referring to divine life. It's new life in Christ. Especially when you put that word eternal there in front of it. Jesus is saying in effect this. He or she who loves their own mind, who loves their own and protects their own emotions, and loves their own will, their own plans and ambitions and self-interest, ultimately will destroy themselves. But if they will love what I want for them, ultimately they capitulate their will and their emotions and their mind to me. They will experience and enjoy eternal life. It's really strong what Jesus says in there. If we love or we hate, I've learned pastoring that I say things that aggravate parents. I don't do it on purpose I just do it because I'm uncouth. Like if you say things like shut up in the pulpit, parents are like, oh my word, help us out, man. If you say things like hate, you ever corrected your kid? I hate my brother. You don't hate. Yes, I do. I hate you, mommy. You don't hate mommy. In this moment, I strongly considering that I am right on legal grounds. I do hate you. Those are Bible words that Jesus is using here. Love and hate, those are opposite ends of the spectrum. What is it that Jesus is saying? Do I have to hate life here? Because honestly, at times I do. Do I have to hate my life in this place to pursue Christ? He's teaching us something of utmost importance. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says it this way. This is strong language. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is the same paradox. What he's articulating there is you cannot love your mind, your emotion, and your will more than you love him. You must die to self-preservation. Can't give first place to your own mind. Can't give first place to your own emotions and your own will. You must ultimately give first place to him. And he's not talking about self-loathing. This is not a self-loathing diagnosis like, well, I deserve to die. No one will care if I'm not here. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather, he is articulating that we must love him and we must love eternity more than we love this place here and now. Jesus never adopted the popular methods of recruitment. Jesus could have said to people, if you follow me, you'll see some pretty amazing miracles. But instead, Jesus always invited people to take up their cross and follow him. 
to love this life less than you love eternal life. To love this world less than you love that world. To take these relationships that we have in an earthly setting and make them subordinate to the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. But if you dearly love this life, if you dearly love your mind and your intellect and your will and your emotion more than you ultimately give him precedent over, I say to you, ultimately, instead of preserving life, you destroy it. Die to selfish ambition. Die to self-preservation. And then in verse 26, die to self-glorification. In verse 26, if any man serve me, Let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now let's get back into the context. Here are these Greeks who have desired to see Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that this is an open invitation to the world. He's not merely speaking to the Jews here. Twice in these verses, he says, if any man, it's an open general invitation. If you want to follow me, you will then serve me. Wherever I am, that is where you will find my servant. Slavery is the way to ultimately be honored. It's counterintuitive. I love what one wrote. We're facing the results of a subtle shift that has now taken the Christian community by force. A generation ago, Christians would pray, Lord, use me. The average Christian today prays, Lord, enrich me. Fifty years ago, the common prayer was, Lord, consume me according to your will. Today, it is, Lord, bless me according to your will. The principle of ownership is when God makes the demands, we do the obey. He wrote, the reason I believe we have it turned around is because we expect that wherever we decide to go, God will faithfully tag along. Whatever we decide to do, God will loyally stamp it with his approval. If that's true, then God is our servant. But that's not what these verses say. No, wherever he goes, we follow. Whatever he decides, we approve. Whatever he says, we obey. And we live in a world that has flipped it on its end. As long as I deem my activity to be inherently noble, then my expectation is whatever I do, God will approve of. Wherever I go, God will bless because God knows my heart. Unfortunately, yes, God knows our hearts. But if I'm trying hard and I'm striving to do right and I ask God, God will simply stamp his approval on whatever it is I'm doing. When we do that, whether we realize it or not, we have just made God our servant instead of us his servant. Wherever I am, Jesus says, that's where you'll find my servant. Simply put, you want to know if you're a servant of Jesus Christ? Answer this, do you go where he goes? Or are you the one setting the pace? Now it's easy to think, I want to be with Jesus when miracles are happening. I would be a disciple who would look back fondly standing on the hillside where 5,000 were fed and we each took up a basket of leftovers. 
I could tell the story of being on the ship where I thought we were going to be swamped and Jesus stepped up and he said, peace be still, and he muzzled the elements. In those moments, I want to be where Jesus is. Make no mistake about it, when Jesus returns again, I want to be where Jesus is, but let's stay married to the context. Jesus in this moment is on his way to the cross. And he says, where I am, there will my servant be. And when Jesus is arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, the disciples scatter. There isn't one left. Now the beloved, he's going to go and he's going to stick close. And we know that Peter is going to go all the way up to Caiaphas' house. And he's going to stand out on the porch. And when he's asked, are you with him, he'll look at the state of Jesus and he will say, no, I'm not with him. And when he's pressed on it and somebody says, now hold on a second, I saw you in the garden with him, he'll say, no, I wasn't there. And when somebody says, wait a second, your speech betrays you. You've got the accent on you of one that was around him. He'll curse and swear because he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus in this moment. And here's the reality of life in this world. Following Jesus sometimes gets hard. And in that moment in time, when Jesus makes it to the cross and breathes his last... No one's with him. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples, whether they pick up on it in this moment or not, is there's going to be some times where it's going to be really difficult to stick with me. But if we die to self-glorification, we walk in that newness of life. Jesus said, I'm not saying, Jesus said, if You will serve me, then someday down the line, my Father will honor you. That's future tense. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Honor is the word in the Greek that refers to reward or compensation or esteem. In effect, if we will say, I am yours you're in charge, then Jesus will say, one day my Father will honor you. One day my Father will reward you. We know that as the Bema seat. Where we who belong to Christ will be judged according to our deeds. And there will be people there who seemingly have spent their life engaged in effort and all of their works will be burned up. Wood, hay, and stubble. Incinerated. And there will be others who have crowns given to them that they can cast at the feet of Jesus. The fact is, if we die to self-glorification and grasp that the highest calling we can have is to be a slave of Jesus Christ and stick close to Jesus Christ and hate this life in the sense that we love Him and eternal life more and we die to selfish ambition, we begin to grasp what it is to actually live. It's paradoxical. I must die to bear fruit. I have to die to live. I literally have to take my intellect, my emotions, and my will and make them subordinate to the plan of God. I have to willingly choose to stick with Jesus as a slave and serve Him at every whim. I must release my career arc 
I must release my desires, my emotional condition, my plans, my my dreams. I've got to give it all to him. And ultimately, we would think that's a death sentence. And Jesus says, here's the paradox. You die to live. This is hard stuff. That's why I said at the beginning, if you've ever been corrected with this, who do you think you are, you'll grasp the tone of what Jesus is communicating. In effect, who do you think you are that your ambitions matter more than holy God's? Who do you think you are that your intellect and your emotions and your will actually supersedes the plan that he has for you? Who do you think you are that you rise above ever being the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and sticking with him? Who do we think we are when we live like that? Surrender it all. No more indignant overt, you can't plant me, you can't have me or mine. All to Jesus, we sing that old hymn, I surrender. That's what he's saying. Will you die to live? Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.